A cancer diagnosis comes into your life suddenly and unexpectedly, even if you aren't the patient. In the days, weeks, and months that follow, there's a lot that unfolds from diagnosis to treatment. When you're not the patient, it may be a little unnerving to know how best to support your family member or friend who has cancer. What should you say or do? What should you not say or do? In today's episode, we're chatting with Reagan Jones, host of the podcast, This Unmillennial Life, who went through her own cancer battle in 2021. We're asking her advice on how to best support someone with cancer. Let's dive in. So Carolyn, I am so excited to have this guest today for many reasons. Professionally, as dietitians, she is a boss. She's a thought leader in our area, really. She, she really is. But also, what we discovered recently is when it comes to the topic of cancer, she has some really fantastic advice. Yeah, and unfortunately, you had had a need to go to her to ask some advice and we realized this is something that you're kind of when you're the outsider of the one who doesn't have the cancer I don't know what to say or do right and like when when do you reach out when don't you reach out what do you do what do you send etc yeah so we we found her information to be so helpful that we want to dive right in to her interview. Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about Reagan Jones, who is our guest today. Reagan is a nationally known award-winning registered dietitian nutritionist. She is the creator and host of This Unmillennial Life, an iTunes top 25 personal journal podcast and food blog for women in midlife who've fallen into a generational gap. As an RDN with more than 20 years of experience sharing quick and easy solutions for healthy living, Reagan's recipes and nutrition insights are frequently featured in the national media. In 2017, she was awarded the prestigious Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Media Excellence Award. Having fallen in love with fitness after 40, Reagan can regularly be found in the gym lifting weights or taking after-dinner walks. A busy mom of two boys, she also enjoys cooking, especially baking, for her family from her home near Augusta, Georgia. Reagan, I'm so excited to finally have you own the podcast. Yes, it's my pleasure. It's so weird to be on this side of the microphone, not doing the interviewing, but I love the change of pace, so I appreciate you inviting me on. Is it more relaxing? I'm wondering. It's been a while since I've been on the other side. Yeah, it really, it is to me. I was like, oh, this is easy. I'm not, I don't have to prepare because <laughs> they're just going to ask me the questions. Fantastic. So today we are talking about a topic that is um, very personal in a way for you. Um, we are talking about supporting the mental wellness of friends and family who have had a cancer diagnosis and Carolyn and I were talking before this, we were wondering, Reagan, if you would just kind of give a little back history as why you are our expert guest today. Sure. I, I wish I wasn't the guest. I wish Same. I didn't have the experience. But now that I do have the experience, you know, I certainly um, am happy to share it with other people in the event that it helps somebody else. So uh, cutting to the chase in 2021, March 17th, to be exact, 
I was diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma, which is breast cancer. Um, I had always gone for mammograms every year. I did have a strong family history of breast cancer. Um, I had gone in 2020, had a normal mammogram. By 2021, I could feel just a small little lump. Um, my OBGYN felt of it, said, oh, you know, it doesn't really feel like cancer. And you were just here for, and your mammogram was normal. So um, I went into the mammogram feeling cautiously optimistic, but was called back for a diagnostic mammogram. And the diagnostic mammogram was very inconclusive, at which point I was sent for an ultrasound. And the ultrasound was quite conclusive. Um, I was in a um, breast surgical oncologist's uh, office that very afternoon getting a biopsy. And two days later, I was, I was told that I had breast cancer. My tumor was 1.7 centimeters, which when you do the math on that, based on what we know about uh, cancer growth, that means my cancer had been growing anywhere from eight to 10 years. And that means that for eight to 10 years, mammogram every year missed um, my tumor. And one of the reasons I go into that detail for your listeners is, is not exactly what we're talking about today. You know, we're going to be talking about supporting people with a diagnosis, but I often feel that it's really important for me to say to women um, and people who love women in their lives that I'm proud if you're getting your mammogram, but your uh, self-care doesn't stop there. You have to do breast exams. Um, I believe it's 30% of all breast cancers in women who have dense breasts will go undetected. So had I not felt that, um, had I not felt that spot, they probably would not have sent me for the ultrasound and um, my outcome would probably look a little bit different if this had just uh, kept growing and kept growing over the next few years. Wow. What wow. stage was it? When you were diagnosed? You know, staging is really interesting because I kind of went into it with like a very rudimentary understanding of staging, like one, two, three, four, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Mm -hmm. And what you realize is, <laughs> I often say this to people, it's not your mother's breast cancer because my mother did have breast cancer. Um, and, and where they are today is it's a little bit more complex in terms of staging because they stage um, based on the size of the tumor. Did it metastasize to any lymph nodes? How many lymph nodes? Was it seen anywhere else? Uh, I think where mine landed was at a 1B. Um, if it had been just a little bit bigger, I think I would have been over in the stage two category, but I just kind of came under the wire and I only had one lymph node involved. And that also helped kind of keep me in that, um, that stage one category. It landed me in chemo. That one lymph node landed me in chemo, unfortunately, but it did, it, it was, you know, I guess viewed more favorably than if it had been multiple lymph nodes. Reagan, um, I've heard you talk a little about your um, diagnosis and your journey with breast cancer before. And just kind of as a PSA, um, I believe it was one of your podcast episodes that I listened to. Um, you really advocate women asking for an ultrasound, even if their yeah. mammogram is clear. Is that right? Yeah, especially if you have an area for them to look at. I okay. mean, one of the things that I've learned from my breast surgical oncologist is that you know, all the tools that we have in terms of breast health, from mammograms to ultrasounds to breast MRIs, they all do different things. And, and they're all approved, unfortunately, at different levels with uh, insurance. So that always complicates things. With ultrasound, it's so much better at looking at the tissue than 
the mammogram when the tissue is very, very dense. So like when you have a dense breast and you compact all that tissue together on a mammogram, it just all looks the same. That's why it's really hard to see a tumor in there for women who have dense breasts. But an ultrasound can, can it just, you know, it just the, the ending is different. The problem with ultrasound is that it's very difficult for them to just roll that ultrasound over an entire breast and get a good picture of where there might be something that's amiss. But if you have a spot that you're concerned about, and I will tell you guys, and this will floor you as well, the place um, at 11 o'clock where my tumor was had actually um, been looked at in 2012 and 2015 on diagnostic mammograms. They had called me back for diagnostic mammograms, 2012 and 2015, and my breast surgeon, my breast surgical oncologist, uh, after I was you know, out of chemo and had my lumpectomy and everything, we looked at those films together and he pretty much said, you know, they were looking at the spot all along. It just took it getting to the size where I could feel it for us to have a place for them to, you know, look at on ultrasound. So I do tell that to women that if they have any concerns, if there's a specific area that they're concerned about, to really see if you can, especially if you get called back for a diagnostic, like usually if you get called back for a diagnostic mammogram, they're looking at a specific area. If I were to ever get called back for a diagnostic, I would absolutely want them to do an ultrasound on the area that was in question in the diagnostic mammogram. Gotcha. It's so important to be an advocate um, for your for your own, you know, health. And it, we've talked about that a fair amount on on the podcast. But to hear you, you know, advise now based on your own experience of how specific we sometimes need to advocate for our health is is it's really nothing short of mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And what I find Briarly is, and I understand this because I, of course, you know, was always like when I got called back for the diagnostics, like super excited that, oh, you're not being told you have a breast cancer diagnosis. So there's something about going and get your mammogram that, you know, we have this like optimism of, hey, it's nothing. And, and I get that, that, that you want to be happy with being told like everything's in the clear and the overwhelming majority of the time it's going to be in the clear. But what I say to women is if, if you have any question in your mind or you have a question mark or you have concerns or you feel like something's not right, because I, I did, even though I'd had that clear mammogram, I did feel like this lump was like, something's not right here. If you have that in your gut telling you, you need to dive a little bit deeper, deeper, then, you know, do your best to dive a little bit deeper because the worst, you know, the, the, the worst that can happen, I guess, or, I mean, obviously not the worst that can happen, but the thing that can happen is that you go and you get the ultrasound and they say, no, it's a cyst or there's nothing there. And that's yeah. just a, another level of reassurance. Yeah. Well, can you tell us where you are today? Um, health wise? Yeah. Um, well, I'm completely out of treatment. I um, finished up radiation around Halloween last year. So I've been out of, you know, active, that kind of active treatment for um, well over a year now. Uh, because my breast cancer was hormone receptive, so there's two different categories really within breast cancer. There's hormone positivity, estrogen and progesterone uh, reception. And then there's something called HER2 protein. And I was HER2 negative, but I was ER, PR positive, which means my cancer was 
um, highly uh, highly receptive to growth via estrogen and progesterone. So since um, that is the case, that's a pretty well established um, oral agent that they give you. They call it chemo, but I mean it's not it's not chemo like what you think of. I take a prescription for at least five years that's meant to um, block any cells within my body that would be receptive to estrogen or progesterone, which automatically um, going through chemo put me into early menopause. And right now we're just kind of in that phase of, I guess, you know, you just, I would consider me um, postmenopausal at this point. And, I, and I'm taking um, tamoxifen is the name of medicine. It's been around forever. My mom mm -hmm. took it with her diagnosis and that's, I'll be on that for um, at least five years. Gotcha. Well, Reagan, this episode was really important for me to do, partly because I really felt like I dropped the ball in supporting you. Oh, don't, don't feel that way. No, Please well, don't feel that way. I, I found out about your diagnosis before you had announced it. I, someone told me because they thought I already knew. I didn't, so of course I'm not going to say anything to you. And then down the road, um, I saw that you shared with your podcast, um, this Millennial Life podcast group on Facebook and on social media. And I really, we've talked about this um, when someone has a death in the family or that kind of thing. I just feel so impersonal or just mm -hmm. so, like it's not sincere enough to post on Facebook. So I kept thinking, I'm going to reach out to her. And then I never did. And then it just, it just snowballs. And then I'm like, I don't even know what to do. I've let it go so long. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. It, like, what do I do now? What's, what I is... understand that sentiment. I really, I really do. I want to tell you, I understand that because honestly, I think prior to my diagnosis, that was my more common reaction to, you know, hearing about someone losing someone in their family or getting a diagnosis is it would be like the best of intentions initially. And mm -hmm. then life is super busy and life was very busy for me prior to my diagnosis. And, and then it felt like there was too much time that had passed. So let yes. me say a couple of things. First of all, from a personal standpoint, don't give it another thought. Like, I don't want you to think like, oh, I let Reagan down. I don't feel that way. Um, that all being said, you know, I know one of the purposes of us talking today is just to kind of like give people some ideas about moving forward. And this is what I would say to you is never too late. It's never too late when somebody it's a matter of fact, you know, what I can say is, you know, almost all, no, well, almost all of 2021 was nothing but cancer for me, you know, from being diagnosed in March to finishing up active treatment in um, at the end of October. So 2021 was, it was a long time, you know? And so a lot of times what you see is that with an initial diagnosis, or at least this is what I saw, there's a lot of activity at the very beginning, but then people get back to their lives and you're, you know, you're kind of still left there going like, Oh, well, I've got to have my port put in. I've got to have a sentinel node biopsy. I've got to have a lumpectomy. I've got to have chemo. I've got to have radiation. And so, you know, it, a lot of people, and, I, and I'm so fortunate, I had, have, have had so many great friends that just listened to me talk about my experience for hours and hours and hours. But, you know, for the most part, like people get back to their lives and you're just still kind of like going through treatment. So anytime someone reached out to me, it was meaningful. So just know that, that it's really never too late to reach out to someone. 
That's good to know. That is that is really good to know. And and um, I think so. One of the uh, that that was one reason we wanted to do this episode. And then the other reason was I recently had someone very close to me in my in my immediate family um, uh, be be diagnosed with uh, some an advanced cancer, um, and they're far away. And and so I. You know, my immediate reaction was I, you know, traveled there because, again, like I said, it was immediate family. Mm-hmm. But then it's how do you support somebody from, you know, from far away? Or it actually doesn't even that w- that's my perspective was like, how do I support somebody from far away? And um, and now that I feel like I am in I am in it pretty closely with my with my whole family, it kind of becomes like a lot of my questions are like, well, how how much is too much for checking in? Mm. Or yeah. um, do I couch, you know, I know that they prefer text. So, like, do I couch my text with no need to respond in, you know, any, you know, immediate fashion? Or um, do I check in with my family member, my other family members instead? And does that make this person feel like I don't care? Or is that, you know, like there's all of these questions, right? And, and I don't expect you to answer all of them, but, but that was kind of like where I was coming from the, from the perspective of like, can someone please just give me some advice? And I have actually reached out to other friends who have had family members who have had cancer and asked them for their advice. Um, but when you and I talked early after the diagnosis, Reagan, the three of us actually did a, a Zoom, I immediately was like, oh, man, Reagan's got some great advice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she got some great advice. So what are your best practices when it comes to contacting people and then checking in with people? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, I always say, you know, I can only speak from my experience and my personality. And so, you know, of course, I acknowledge that everybody is different. And I think that if you have someone that you're very, very close with, either a close family member or a close friend, and you know something about them that specifically you want to take into consideration, you know, about how frequently or infrequently or like broadly said, like they prefer texts or whatever the case may be. Like, I think those, those are things that you, you personalize, but in general, what I would say is, um, receiving a cancer diagnosis is a very lonely proposition. You know, I'm, I'm married. I have two children. Both of my parents are still alive, but there is still something just, uniquely lonely about being alone with your thoughts about your own mortality and you know how this is going to affect your family members and sometimes just people checking in to kind of break the monotony of like thinking through those things and like worrying about well when am I going to get the result of that next scan you know sometimes just that little bit of checking in which is a distraction from you know that train of thought especially in the early days of diagnosis that was good for me. Um, I had been using Marco Polo with friends prior to my diagnosis. That that was something that came out of uh, COVID, and I I loved it. You know, when people check would check in and and you know just check and see how I was feeling. And I think, Briarly, your um, your point about like is it okay to say like you don't have to respond or should you say that? I mean, I think you just base that off of like you know, how you're feeling in the morning, uh, in the moment, just, you know, 
an encouraging text to say, hey, just wanted you to know I'm thinking about you. I don't think that you can ever go wrong with that. The one thing that I've, I've told people and I've talked about it on social media and I've probably put it in blog posts and Carolyn, this is not directed at you. I wasn't even thinking about you. So don't, <laughs> so don't lead this into it. But I did have a couple of really close colleagues. Like, you know, you and I are, are close colleagues in that every few months or something, we might have something that overlaps. But I had a couple of colleagues that were like, much, much closer in just like how often I felt like I connected with them. And, you know, they never reached out to me still to this day have not reached out, like never acknowledged my diagnosis. And I'm certainly at a place now where I just, I, um, you know, I realize I've been given so much grace and mercy in this world. And I don't harbor any resentment because I understand that Cancer is very difficult for people for very different reasons. Sometimes people just can't address it because they've lost a family member, you know, or their life is busy and they've got their own burdens. But I, but I say that to say, um, you never know when somebody may be thinking like, I wonder, I wonder why she didn't reach out, you know, so reaching out, no matter what you're going to say, I do think reaching out is always a good idea. Yeah. Well, that is good to hear. Yeah, that is very good to hear. And and I when you were saying when you were starting to tee that story up, Reagan, I, I had a feeling that that was what you were going to say. And and I think that it's it's interesting how when you experience something challenging in your life, um, be it cancer, be it a death, be it divorce, be it, you know, a job loss. You're always surprised when you don't hear from a person. And I having had other experiences that were life altering, you know, I always just try to say to myself, like, that's probably more of a reflection of that person doesn't know what to say, you yeah. know, and don't take yeah. this the wrong way. Like, uh -oh. No, 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 no. I didn't mean <laughs> Me like again. That. No, I just, I mean, like, you know, I think that sometimes people just, they just, they don't know what to say. And so they just err on the side of not saying. Right, and, and then I it goes right. so and long, it goes so long, and then yeah. you feel like it's you've gone too long not to say anything. But yeah, I should have just said something. Yeah, I don't. I really, truly don't think. I mean, if if either one of those women reached out to me today and said, um, you know, I, I'm sorry I didn't reach out, and I, you know, it would be meaningful me to me now. Like, you know, it would still yeah. be meaningful. So I really don't think that there's a time cap. And I think some of the discomfort, I know with cancer, I get this. Some of the discomfort is you hear Reagan was diagnosed with breast cancer. Well, you don't know, does that mean like stage zero, you know, pre-cancer, no treatment? Does that mean like stage four medicine? And people are really uncomfortable, I think, reaching out if they think, you know, it's, uh, air quotes, a bad situation. But, you know, and I can't put myself exactly what it would have been like if my diagnosis had been different. But I do know that it was scary enough in the very beginning when we found out that I had a lymph node involved and we're having to go through that whole process. Um, that even in those very, very scary days, I can't think of anything anybody could have done in terms of reaching out that I would have thought, well, gosh, she shouldn't have done that or he shouldn't mm -hmm. have done that. Like that's totally that's inappropriate. A and I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty private person. So even for me, as private as I am for, um, me to just be, I was just so appreciative when people reached out to let me know they were thinking about me or, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm Christian and I'm a person of faith. And so when someone said to me, I am praying for you. I believed them and I felt those prayers. And so I just, 
I think that those things are meaningful. And again, I don't think that there's a time cap on when you can reach out. Let me ask you something about one particular question. And I'm just yeah. facing this and having gone through some really rough um, medical stuff with my kids. Um, and, you know, when you're going through anything like that, you are so immersed in all, like you said, you know, the biops. I mean, you're just so immersed in all the details and the complexity of it and trying to understand it. And I, when people would text, not many people knew, but, you know, and said, how are you? I, I was like, I don't even know where to start, you know, because it's so <laughs> complex and huge is how are you? Should we avoid that when asking or I mean, should we phrase it differently? Like, how are your spirits or like, I just, I, how is, how are you an appropriate question for someone yeah, with cancer? I think it's okay. I think it's okay. It's natural. I mean, I think it's a natural, you know, a natural question. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, you know, is there anything that I can do for you? I was, that was one of the things that I, then, you know, we were going to talk through questions or whatever. And I'll, I'll say that one of the things that I definitely learned is that, and I, and I, and, and I, again, I think it's fine to just reach out and say, I was just wondering how you're doing. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. Those kind of things. I think even that at a bare minimum is, is enough because it lets somebody know that you are thinking about them. I think one thing that I did learn, and it, it's a, that takeaway from this whole experience is that instead of asking a cancer patient or anyone who's going through some sort of treatment, what they need or saying like, I'll, I'll help you any way I can. I think that's good. But I think the next level is saying, which I had a friend that did this because people would keep asking like, you know, can we make a meal? Can we make a meal? And I, I didn't really opt for that for a number of different reasons, but I had one friend who was like, I'm bringing a meal over on Wednesday and she brought it. And, you know, it actually was a good thing. So there's sometimes I think that you don't want to be super pushy, but sometimes, you know, going ahead and like dropping off a care package of like muffins or whatever, if they have kids and you're trying to help them with breakfasts or, you know, just saying like, I'm going to bring a meal on Wednesday. Would you rather have this or that? Like, those are okay things to do. You don't want to be too pushy, but it is okay. Because it's, it's really hard, too, as a cancer patient to be like, yeah, I need all the help in the world. You know, mm -hmm. that's really not what you want. What I wanted as soon as I was diagnosed was like, I just, I don't want my life to change. You know, mm -hmm. it changed a lot and a lot of it changed for the better. But when you're in the throes of it, you don't want to feel like you're a burden to anyone you don't want to feel like you're convalescent, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to feel like you need a lot of help. But the reality is, is a lot of times there are things that you can do for people that are very, very helpful. So what are some other things that you that you feel like people can do that are helpful or that you appreciated? And for, you know, if you have a couple ideas that are in like, physically present in person in town kind of people or mm -hmm. even things to send somebody? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have, well, first of all, I'll say I have a post up on this unmillennialife.com that's gifts for someone diagnosed with breast cancer going through chemo or radiation. And I have sent the link to you guys and I believe you're probably will include it in the show notes. So that's yes. a really good post for anyone to review because it goes into great detail about all the different things that were given to me and why I think they were really good gifts. That all being said, to kind of top line it, you know, obviously flowers 
are, in my opinion, are, I don't think they're cliche. I think that they brighten up your day. So I think you can always go that route if you really just are at a loss. But other things that people gave me that were more, a little bit, I guess, specific to, you know, my diagnosis and my treatment journey, I had two different um, sets of friends that sent me like, um, like a cable knit blanket um, one that was monograms with, you know, um, something from my friends on there. That was very, very meaningful. I received a necklace from a couple of friends that was meant to kind of like, you know, hold close to my heart and know that they cared about me. So those were gifts that were really thought through in terms of what the gift was supposed to, to say. And those were meaningful. But then there were really, really practical gifts. One of my friends gave me um, a zip up hoodie, which you wouldn't think was like, all that necessary, but going through radiation, I went through six and a half weeks of radiation and radiation is you go every day, you know, five days a week and you're going in, you're zipping off, you know, you're taking your clothes off, you're laying down on this table, you're getting radiation, you're getting back up. And it's like just, uh, you know, this very routine thing. And so you don't really want to have to go in all bundled up and have to take off a ton of clothing. So I just wore that, um, that little hoodie every day to radiation. I had another friend who gave that. me, um, it's called a chemo port shirt. So the intricacies of chemo are that most people will get a chemo port and it's right near, you know, where your clavicle is. And um, mine stuck out a good bit. It wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world, but when you sit down in the chemo chair, you know, your nurses have to be able to get to that. So then you start trying to like think through like, well, what kind of shirts do I wear? And, you know, you can't, you can't just wear a sweatshirt because they can't get to it. Mm. So I had a friend who gave me um, a shirt that had like a little zip right there at the chemo port so that I could wear that to chemo every time. And I did. And, you know, so those are, there are definitely gifts out there that are what I would say geared toward a specific part of your either your treatment or your surgery. There are robes out there for women who do reconstruction and it helps them hold their drains. I didn't go that surgery route, but I know that, you know, that that's a really good gift. Um, some other gifts that I was given, a set of friends gave me a fruit of the month subscription, which was mm. so fun because oh, it basically great. lasted the whole time I was going through chemo and radiation. And so once a month, I'd get this awesome you know, box of in-season fruit. And uh, that was just, you know, that was really fun. I had a friend who sent um, apple fritters. Apple fritters are one of my favorites and he happened to know that. And so he sent, you know, apple fritters from, you know, just a, a bakery across the country. So there are a lot of creative ideas. You know, if you just kind of think about the person and what you know about them, it might be something meaningful between the two of you about your friendship or your relationship. It could be something very, very practical that helps them get through their treatment. Um, I made a list on that post that I was talking about that categorizes kind of what I think are the best things to think through for gifts. And it's basically, it, can the gift inspire? Can it provide some sort of comfort? Uh, can it pamper them? Because, um, you know, at, at least for many, many women, there's the opportunity to, you know, get pampered and maybe like go and get your nails done or something like that, where that might not be something that you did before, but a little treat like that can really lift your spirits or just does it provide a solution to a problem? Um, you know, chemo especially is wrought with problems in terms of just like the side effects. And so 
I did have some people who sent me gifts like ginger chews and lemon drops and um, some of those things that really like kind of fit for that treatment. So that's a pretty robust list, but I think you get the point that there are a lot of different ways to tackle it. I love this list. We're looking at it now while we talk to you. Um, And I love your inspire, comfort, pamper, or solve a problem. And we will definitely link this in the show notes. Yes. I actually have already started selecting the items that I will be purchasing (laughs) and sending to my family member. This list is amazing. Well, don't do them all because I kind of want to send something. I'm not going to do them all. (laughs) I'm not. I just, there were a couple that really stood out. I I can't do the whole list. Christmas is coming. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I love, like, I love, love, love this list. And we will absolutely um, link to it. So what about when, when you should send something? Would your advice follow the same of when you should reach out to somebody? I mean, to me, the, the journey, the, the treatment process is long. It is extremely long. And I had people, um, who sent me things throughout my, my treatment. I'm, I'm pretty sure that some of the stuff, you know, radiation was toward the end of active treatment. And definitely I'll just put a plug in to say radiation, man, it is not the same as chemo. Like it is so much more manageable. <laughs> so it felt good, you know, to be that far along and to be in the easier part of treatment, but I still, people were still sending me things and I'm still receiving cards. And that's another thing. Like we talk about gifts and, and all of that, but a card, I mean, I still have all of the cards that were sent to me. Just a card is meaningful. Again, it's this like acknowledgement that somebody knows that you're going through something that is scary as hell. I mean, that mm-hmm. is the bottom line. It is scary as hell. And I used to have people have still have people say, you're so brave. I'm like, I'm not brave. I didn't sign up for this. Like brave would be if you raised your hand and said, yeah, I'll voluntarily go through this. I didn't, I just, I didn't have a choice, you know, but when somebody takes time out of their day, send you a text, send you a Marco Polo, send you an email, call you, send you a card or whatever. It just says to you that they, that you mean something to them, that they care whether, I mean, this is going to sound bad, but that they care whether you live or die. That's kind of how it feels. And it, it, I, I think that um, any point in that process is a good time to reach out to someone. Cause like I said, there's a lot of activity at the beginning, but then people kind of get back on with their lives and you're still left, like go into chemo and go into radiation and all those kind of things. You're not the only one that has said to me that it is very, it feels very lonely, regardless Mm -hmm. of how many people you have rallying around you, that it, it is a very lonely, scary process. And, and also, you know, I don't know many people who have worked through their treatment, Mm -hmm. like they've had to take some time off of work, but it's not like you're actively running to appointments all the time. So there's a lot of mental downtime. Yeah, there is. Um, You know, in the very beginning, and it's interesting because I actually have a work colleague who was going through some diagnostics for uh, lymphoma that started before my diagnosis and she was still in that diagnostic phase after I ended radiation. So I acknowledge up front that for different illnesses, different forms of cancer, or different forms of just chronic disease, like the timelines are very different. But my experience with breast cancer, at least what I went through, it was 
in the very beginning, it was appointments nearly every day. It, it felt like just every day you were go I was going to get some sort of scan, I was getting a biopsy, you know, all these things. But then, and that's all to put the plan in place, like to determine, you know, let's assess how bad is this and then what do we have to do to treat it? So once you get the plan in place, you're right. It is a lot of, hey, we're just, you know, show up for me, my chemo sessions were um, every three weeks. So I'd go to chemo and then have a whole week of feeling pretty rotten and then have a week of feeling not quite as rotten and then one week of feeling good. But you know, really was I was going to like one doctor's appointment during that time just with my oncologist to check up and I really wasn't working. Um, so you're just, you're, you're kind of alone with your thoughts, you know, and um, in many ways for me, that gave me a lot of time to reflect on just a lot of things about my life and about my friendships and about my family and, you know, about my goals and my aspirations and the gratitude and, you know, all these things. But as you guys know, I mean, you, you both focus on mental health and, and wellness. Um, sometimes being alone with your thoughts day in, day out when they're scary thoughts is, yeah. it's nice to have a break. So, you know, if you, if you find yourself thinking, gosh, this is a tough situation and I, I don't want to feel as if I'm making light or bringing too much levity. I, I don't think that there's quite as much risk of that as people worry. I think you can acknowledge the severity of someone's diagnosis and you know, acknowledge the reality, but people still like to laugh and people still like to have you know a good time. And so you can, I think people can navigate that and balance that a lot better than maybe they think when they're when they're you know sort of scared and apprehensive yeah yeah that, that's a good thing to remember that bringing levity and and just uh, you know uh, having make not making light of the situation but just having a right. light moment you know is yeah. is yeah. hugely hugely valuable um yeah so we've talked a lot about how to support the patient um <clears throat> Can we talk a little bit about like how to support the family? And you know, you mentioned like I know you've got kids, you have a husband, you also have living parents. So like are do you have any examples of like what made your kids like how your kids were supported that was, you know, exceptional to them or for your husband and for your parents because I think that you know, even for parents seeing their adult child go through something as, you know, as scary as cancer is is really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I know for a fact that um, many of my mother's friends, specifically because my mom has had breast cancer twice and she has multiple friends who've had breast cancer. I know that for them, there really was kind of a uh, community support there and just, you know, kind of supporting her because it is scary, you know, for this to be, be your child. Um, I think for my own family, and I just, I laugh when I say this, the thing that I think my kids would um, remember the most is, you know, we got these, we got so many goodies. So, you know, somebody brought us crumble cookies and somebody sent us apple fritters. And so there were like <laughs> sort of fun things like that that my kids loved. You know, it's not that they, it's not that they don't, didn't realize like, hey, this is, this is sort of scary, but really with kids at home, you know, I do think that that is one of the the balancing acts that 
a, a, you know, a mom with kids at home or even, you know, or a dad, but we're talking about breast cancer. So a mom with kids at home, that's a real balancing act. And I think there was something that maybe you guys had asked me before the interview started. Um, and I'll just go ahead and kind of throw it in here because I think it's really important. Um, when it comes to things to not ask mm-hmm. someone, mm-hmm. Uh, the kids really are where I think that's most important. And I, and I actually learned this from a podcast interview I did with some, a woman who had been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and she pointed out to me, and I saw this to be the case so much once I had my diagnosis, is that the, I think the only place to be really careful is if someone has children at home, to be careful about asking them a, about like things like, well, how bad is it? Or what's mm. the prognosis? Because the reality is, is that no matter what your diagnosis is, I mean, you can go out there and if you want to find some really bad statistics and, you know, yeah. you don't, that is not the kind of thing that we talked about with our kids. Um, and so I think just being really mindful that, you know, with kids in the home, you do have to navigate those conversations a little bit differently. Even if it's somebody you're super, super close with, you just want to be mindful that that's not, you're not putting them in the position to have to have that conversation in front of their kids if they don't want to. And, you know, they may feel differently than I did, but that wasn't something I wanted to talk about. You know, I, I, did, I wouldn't have wanted somebody to say like, well, what does this one lymph node mean? Well, this one lymph node means it could be somewhere else in my body. You know, I didn't really want that to be something that I talked about you know, with my kids. So that, mm-hmm. I think that's one important thing to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of what's going on, I think kids just want to feel normal. Secure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Secure. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I'm thinking like divorce, you know, mm-hmm. that's not what yeah. they want to talk about. Right. Talk about what you normally would talk to them yeah. about. Um, well, yeah. and I think too, the other, the other thing that I was thinking about Reagan, as you were saying that is that um, I think it's important that friends and family are mindful of who's present during a conversation. Um, And I, I definitely have had that where I've, you know, been asked for an update and my kids are around and they're very aware of what's going on. But the way that I might update an adult versus how I'm going to update my seven and 10 year old is very different. And, um, you know, and I've had to say like, you know, either keep it light or just be like, Oh, let's do this. And then we'll talk about it later kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because kids are always listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. And they don't, you know, they don't know how to put it into perspective right. quite the way that an adult does. So I, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we did, we did derail a little bit. Was there anything that your husband found particularly helpful um, and supportive or that, or not helpful or not helpful? <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to put it. Not helpful. Yeah. You know, um, he's, as private as I am, if maybe a little bit more so. Um, and I, I do think he, for the most part, liked to keep it sort of on the, the up and up, the positive attitude. Um, it, I think a lot of times maybe that is the role a spouse or a significant other or partner can play or they do play is, you know, when you're, you know, when you're kind of feeling low, they're trying to lift your spirits a little bit. And that's just the, the, the delicate balance that you have in a relationship. So I do think that from the standpoint of like conversations with other people, 
and people asking about me to him, I, you know, I, I could tell he usually kept it on the, the positive note as much as possible. As far as like people doing things for the family, though, um, you know, like I said, I mean, most everything was geared toward little comfort or inspiration or pampering gifts that were sent directly to me. And sometimes when um, strong-willed friends kind of pushed us into, hey, we're going to bring you a meal or something, that that was certainly helpful. But um, yeah, I can't really think of anything else, though, that I think is specifically like partner or spouse related. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think depending on if you are closer friends with maybe the partner or the spouse, that maybe makes it a little bit easier because if you know something that they need, you know, you can kind of think that through. And sometimes that's something as simple when it's a caregiver of offering, like in my case, I didn't need a ton of like, like help. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times it's just, just sort of sitting and kind of waiting for the chemo to wear off. That was the hardest part, but depending on what someone is going through, like if they have, if they have some pretty significant needs through their spouse as a caregiver, then if you are someone who can offer to go with them to chemo, drive them to chemo, mm -hmm. drive them to a doctor's appointment, sit with them, you know, um, if their spouse needs to be gone on a work trip or, um, you know, is going to work every day and, and the person doesn't really want to be alone, then those are always things that you can do to kind of support the spouse because it takes the stress and worry off of them that their, you know, their spouse, that's the patient is at home, you know, by themselves needing something, something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that makes it, that makes a ton of sense. Cause it, again, going back to the fact that it is, it is a long process, um, mm -hmm that you, you know, you get to the point where maybe, maybe your spouse doesn't need to go with you to, to every, everything, because you kind of, like you said, you have your plan, you have your diagnosis, you know, and at this point, like, maybe they need to have the space to go do something else. And yeah. it would, you know, sure, why, why not have a friend take you or a yeah. friend of theirs take you? I, I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. This has been so helpful. It really um, has. And interesting, too. Um, what's one thing that you wish more people knew about um, when it comes to supporting the mental health um, of a person with cancer? Or is there anything you feel that's really important that we didn't cover um, to share with people? Well, I think we've really hit on the most important thing. We hit on that in the very beginning, which is what you and I talked about. Like, it's never too late. Um, there are seldom awkward questions, but the one thing that, you know, people will say, like, did anybody say anything to you that really got on your nerves? <laughs> um, I do think the one thing that people say sometimes in trying to be hopeful and optimistic and positive is sometimes they will say something that will sort of like minimize the worry and it, and it's meant to in their minds, I think, like, tamp down the severity, but sometimes it can come off as, like, you're dismissing the fact that I have mm -hmm. a life-threatening disease. Yeah. Um, so I think you do have to be careful about that. It's always good to be positive and upbeat and optimistic, but, you know, anything that's like, well, just be thankful it's not such and such and such and such. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, or just be thankful you're alive. Oh. I did, I, I made the choice to cold cap. That's not something that we talked about, but um, I made the choice to cold cap. And I did have someone say to me as I was kind of like talking through that whole process and, you know, just the whole like losing hair and 
cold capping is you you cold cap during chemo to prevent hair loss. Mm -hmm. And I did have someone say to me, well, you just ought to be glad, you know, you should worry about your hair. You just ought to be glad to be alive. And I, I was wow. like, okay, I am glad to be alive, but I also have two children at home. I saw my mom tw twice bald with cancer. I know what that is like to see someone that you love, like going through that. And if I can, if I can do something to kind of minimize that impact in my home, I am. So I do think that's probably the big thing is just try not minimizing, mm -hmm. you know, what's happened for the sake of trying to be positive. Um, I, I think that's probably, probably the biggest one. You, you said that so eloquently. <laughs> I've you, thought about it. You really did. <laughs> over time, over time. Yeah, I've thought about it. Well, I want listeners to know that if they're interested in hearing more about your journey and cold capping and that type of thing, um, you shared a lot of that on your podcast once you were through yeah. the treatment. And so we will um, we will link Reagan's podcast in the show notes as well. If you want to go back and hear more about her treatments, her journey, the cold capping, all of that kind of thing. And I yeah. promise you will probably find an episode somewhere in there that you can that can really resonate with you in other aspects of life that are not <laughs> cancer focused. I know I have found many where I'm like, oh, yes, I got to listen to that one. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of ironic, you know, I started the podcast six years ago for, you know, sort of this midlife season that we're all in, and when it felt like at the time there were no podcasts talking about what's sort of happening with women at midlife, and boy, when I found out that I was going to be the one doing episodes on breast cancer, I was like, well, I didn't really want to sign up for this, but, you know, I do realize I'm fortunate to have the platform that I have, and, you know, I just try to look at it and go, like, how can I use what's happened to serve other people? And so there are things about sharing my journey. Like I really do want to help people, women understand that they need to feel their breasts every month. You need to feel of them. If you're, if you're premenopausal right after um, you have your period, because that's when they're going to be the least naughty. You need to advocate for yourself. If there's something that doesn't feel right. And if you get called back for a diagnostic and there's an area that they're looking at, I encourage you to press forward on, you know, trying to get an ultrasound. If you are someone who has a strong family history of breast cancer, I did. My mom was tested for BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are the primary dominant uh, breast cancer genes. She years ago tested negative. So I unfortunately thought I didn't have a breast cancer gene. As it turns out, there are new breast cancer genes that have been discovered. So if you're someone who qualifies for genetic testing based on your history, it might be in your best, um, it, it might be good for you to go ahead and have that done because then that, it's not necessarily prescriptive that you're definitely going to have cancer, but it gives you more information, you know, to go through screenings. And another thing that I would say uh, is just if you are one of the one in eight women who will be diagnosed with breast cancer, know that treatment has come a long, long way know that you don't have to be a patient that's on, you know, the conveyor belt of the healthcare system. You can advocate for yourself. Uh, if you go see a physician and you don't care for him, you can always get a second opinion and you can go another one. Uh, I actually did that. There was a part of my treatment that I was considering, met with the physician, decided, nope, not, not the route for me. And I went a different route. Um, and super, super happy with that. And then the last thing that I would say, uh, and I always, always want people to hear this part, is that um, if you have someone in your life who is given a chemo, you know, prescription, 
And they are someone like me who really would prefer, and most women will, uh, to not lose their hair for various reasons. And don't please don't ever say that it's vanity because it's so much more than that. It's about identity and about protecting, you know, your privacy and about shielding your children from, from some scary things. And you want to do cold capping, I will hold your hand. And I have held many hands over the last year. And I'm happy anytime someone asks me for my, my advice. Cold capping is not perfect, um, but it is a stopgap measure that works for a lot of people. And it worked for me. And um, I would be happy to help anybody that has any questions about it. Thank you so yeah, much for you. sharing um, your journey and then all this advice and so much personal information too especially for a private person <laughs> I, well I'm less private about this than I than <laughs> many things because I just realized that you know I'm in a unique position to hopefully take what I went through and help someone else um I was very it was a very very scary time and you know it still is scary I don't know what the future holds I know I have this bum gene that put me at risk and um you know it it's, it's, that's a, it's a kind of a hard thing to, to struggle with it. But, uh, when you can help other people and you begin to get out of your own needs and begin to think about others and how you can support others, it, it makes what you're going through not feel um, quite as lonely. Thank you, Reagan. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for asking. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for the Happy Eating Podcast. I'm Briarly Horton. And I'm Carolyn Williams. If you liked this week's episode, then don't forget to rate and leave us a review on iTunes. And be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss a new episode. We can't wait to have you back at our table next week for a brand new episode. Bye. Bye. The contents discussed in the Happy Eating Podcast, such as advice, studies, text, graphics, images, and other material discussed or presented on the site or podcast are for informational purposes only. Content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Happy Eating Podcast. If you are in crisis or think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 8255, to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you are located outside the United States, call your local emergency line immediately.